Beeple, we felt, was a very powerful message or a metaphor, essentially, for our digital generation. First, there's this almost spiritual commitment that he has to putting out one work of art every day. It's the ferocious level of commitment if you think about it, right? You, you really must want it bad to give something, to create something on your you know, good days, bad days, when you're in the mood, when you're not, when your wife is in labor, for God's sake. I mean, he did that even on you know, those days, right? So we respected that a lot. It, the message it sent out was, you know, you got to start somewhere essentially, but you know, if you keep at it, you're going to hit the end of the rainbow whether it's at the end of a year or 13 years, which which it was in this case. So, you know, that's why Beeple as an icon was so appealing to us. Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains and the go-to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3, NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GMGM, welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon. I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by a special guest. We got a fan of the podcast, and he's building in Web3 and deep into NFTs. I'm joined by Anon, co-founder and CEO of EDAO. Anon, thanks for joining the podcast today. My pleasure, Josh. It's great to be here. Like you said, I am a fan, have been for a while now, so it's great to be here. That is awesome. I love talking with people who have listened to previous episodes, and I think that our episode today will be a great addition to just the whole list of interviews and topics we're covering. So I know that not only are you an NFT collector, but you're a builder. And I think that brings two interesting perspectives to the table. So to get into that, I'd like to just you to share how you got into crypto in the first place up until the moment that you decided to buy the Beeple every day, the 5,000, what, what, what's the official title? It's the 5,000 every days? Yeah. The first 5,000 every days. Yeah. The first 5,000 every days NFT, you, you, you decided to go in and bid on that. And I think that's a, a crazy story. I mean, it was a historic moment for the NFT space. And so I'm just stoked to be able to talk to you about it. So yeah, walk us through your journey and what led you up to that moment to decide, hey, I want to bid on this NFT and own it. Oh, wow. <laughs> there's, there's two versions to that journey. I don't know which one you'd prefer, but but here goes. I know which one I prefer. The exciting uh, one. It, yeah. <laughs> oh, both of them are actually, only one of them is exciting. The NFT part is exciting. The first version of the story is a series of missed opportunities, essentially. I mean, I first heard of Bitcoin in, in uh, late 2012, which everybody can attest to is, is a great time to hear about Bitcoin and get into space, but uh, it completely flew over my head, right? Metakoven or Vignesh, as he's known, he told me all about it when he discovered it. And that packet of information was enough to set him off on a journey of entrepreneurship and, and everything else, wild adventures, essentially. But it did nothing for me because I couldn't relate to it. Cut to uh, a few years later. I mean, I was a journalist at that time. I had started to get into fintech, you know, go-to-market strategy for companies that made software for banks, essentially. I had a brush with Ethereum when it was about to launch. One of the co-founders, I think, Vinay, like we had him on a Twitter spaces kind of a thing. But, you know, again, I just couldn't make sense of it. 
the simple idea of Ethereum is that it allows you to build decentralized applications, right? Both financial and across the board. But that's not what the narrative was when it launched. So I couldn't make head or tail of it. What I'm actually curious, what was the narrative at that moment? I don't know. I can't even remember it now. That's that's the point. It went off into so many different tangents of uh, changing the world as we know it, you know, revolutionizing not just finance, but how companies are built, the idea of uh, ICOs and all of that. Everything was new. And uh, I was, uh, you know, looking at it from the point of view of transaction banking, which, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> it's completely random stuff, right? So I missed the bus yet again. But then uh, a couple of years later, the more I understood money, the more sense crypto started to make. So when Metacoven came back and said, do you want to jam and do something in DeFi? I jumped at the opportunity. And that's how in 2017, I started to build DeFi protocols with him or talk about them at the very least. Right. But I found my groove only in 2020 when the world went into lockdown and we were all to look inward and find our place in the scheme of things, right? That's when I discovered the NFT space. I created a pseudonym, Tubador, which gave me like a a completely clean slate. And the beauty of the NFT space and crypto in general is that it's still so nascent that you get instant feedback. And essentially what you put in is what you get out, right? So in one sense, it's extremely scary because you can't rest on any of your past laurels. Like there's no fallback option, right? On the other, it's a completely clean slate, especially the pseudonymous economy, right? Where nobody's judging you based on where you're from, what you look like, you know, what color you are, what you sound like. You put in value and that's what you get back. And that was a major aha moment for me. And so after six months of sort of living as Troubadour in the system and jamming with uh, some incredible creators and artists and raconteurs, right? We started up Metaverse, which was an experiment by Metacoven, essentially. He said, look, I'm comfortable looking at the space from a bird's eye view. You seem to be completely going ape with every NFT project. So let's join forces. You be the on-ground guy and I'll keep looking at the larger trends and stuff. And so Metaverse started as an experiment in acquiring culturally significant NFTs to, by the time, you know, the Beeple thing happened and later on exited six, seven months later, it had become a mammoth fund for NFTs, for NFT-based enterprises and for token projects as well. It was um, in, the, in the range of 200 to $250 million, which is wow. just pretty wild journey that way. And you all sourced funds from a community or from investors from Metapurse? Or is that all from you two? Nothing from me. I have no money. All of the money is Metacovins, essentially, right? So it's the sweetest job in the world. If you think about it, it's I get to spend Metacovins money. That that was my whole job. I said, let's deploy this capital in interesting ways, in ways that have not been done before. I said, all right, let's do it. (laughs) Let's buy it. Let's buy a Beeple NFT and set the world on fire. No, that's... (laughs) That was not our intention at all. Maybe we'll get into it a little bit, but why we fell in love with people or, you know, why that appealed to us is, was quite straightforward, right? Even before the Christie's auction, people we felt was a very powerful message or a metaphor essentially for our digital generation. First, there's this almost spiritual commitment that he has to putting out one work of art every day. It's the ferocious level of commitment if you think about it, right? You, you really must want it bad to give something, to create something on your you know, good days, bad days, when you're in the mood, when you're not, when your wife is in labor, 
for God's sake. I mean, he did that even on, you know, those days, right? So we respected that a lot. It The message it sent out was, you know, you got to start somewhere essentially, but, you know, if you keep at it, you're going to hit the end of the rainbow, whether it's at the end of a year or 13 years, which which it was in this case. So, you know, that's why Beeple as an icon was so appealing to us. Yeah. The Christie's auction was culturally and historically extremely significant if you think about it, right? For one, a 250-year-old institution was for the first time acknowledging digital art as art, which hadn't happened before. Then there's the idea of it being an NFT for the first time. So it was too too juicy an opportunity to pass up. We felt that it belonged in the metaverse. And so we just, you know, went right in. Yeah. What we didn't expect was, you know, what that gap was going to be, essentially. But in retrospect, I'd still say it was it was a great thing that we did it and not Justin Sun, who it happens was the <laughs> was a losing bidder there. Just I mean, if you're into stranger things, right? it would have turned the NFT space into the upside down, essentially. You yeah. Think about the the vibes that it would send out, essentially, right? So yeah, anyway, that's that's the short part of the journey, yeah. I think it's an awesome journey that you're describing here. I mean, just how how you got into crypto. I think a lot of people feel similar in the way that they feel like they missed out. There's this narrative of the bull runs. Oh, you know, Bitcoin's never going back to the all-time high. So I missed out already. I don't want to dive in, but you didn't look at that as a barrier to continuing your own education, experimentation, whatnot. You still found your place. I hope people take that away from your story and still find ways to build, collect, invest in crypto today because we're still at the early stages. I mean, even though we've gone through yet another cycle, the innovation is still happening. And then on your comment about people, I feel very similarly just so impressed by the everyday thing. We got to see his art progress from day one. And it's pretty interesting. If you ever look at the, I mean, I'm sure you have, but if anyone hasn't, go look at like the his first year of artwork. It he was not A, really, yeah. I mean, that good. <laughs> the stuff yeah. wasn't even all digital yet. And so we've seen a full story arc. And I don't know if we've ever seen a development of an artist quite like this ever in terms of the everyday progression. I've challenged myself to write. 30 pieces in 30 days, 250 words each starting a week ago. I got seven days in and this past weekend I moved. I couldn't do it on Saturday or Sunday. I couldn't write. I had no time. And I was reflecting actually before this podcast, I made it seven days out of my 30 and I, and I missed the day. People's been going for years. And how many people have really tried to do something every single day? I bet not many. And so it, you don't even realize the magnitude of his efforts. Exactly. Well, now you do. I mean, $69 million does put a sense to the magnitude of those efforts. But, you know, jokes apart, right? About, you know, my own journey and what people might take away, right? I, I think people will still be attracted to the space and come in even without a direct, like, financial or monetary benefit. Because the reason I came in or found my groove was because I finally found something that was relevant to me. Right. I knew people were making millions, but it wasn't relevant to me because neither was I some savant coder, nor was I an expert at financial instruments. Right. And for the longest time, unless you were these two, you had no point of entry, no port into the NFT space, into the crypto space. Once NFT started to happen, now whether you're a gamer or you're interested in art or movies or music or any of these things that you, you know, have a personal and visceral connect with, you've got a portal of entry into the crypto space, right? 
that's what matters. So in a sense, my journey is one of either a series of missed opportunities. I'm the perfect metaphor for the NFT space. You know, I'm not inherently extraordinary by any stretch, right? We have five minutes in and that's that's obvious. But, you know, I'm like the forest gump of uh, crypto, essentially, like right place at the right time and have had the privilege of, you know, having a vantage point to so many interesting things that happen within crypto. So, yeah, so people yeah. have a way to get in now. Really, really good point. I feel like I've reflected on something similar, but I like the way you put it. I felt like crypto was always financial focused. And now we have this array of use cases. And it's like, pick the one that interests you. I actually am not into the finance side of crypto at all. I'm not a trader. I, DeFi isn't something I really touch, but it's the music, the art. I mean, these other things that brought me in and now have expanded my horizon. So very good point. Now that we have all these opportunities to enter crypto. And I mean, we're even seeing a lot of discussion right now with Reddit. People are interacting with crypto without even always realizing they're interacting with crypto. And, and we'll, we'll get to that later in the pod. So I have a couple more questions on the Beeple piece before talking about some free NFTs that I want to bounce off you. But with the Beeple piece, what are the plans for it now after the purchase? That's a part that I haven't heard about this story. Do you and um, the, the partner you're working with display it somewhere, plans to sell it or, or just hodl it? I mean, I'm no longer with Metapus. I sort of parted ways sometime in March this year. It was a very well-planned out sort of uh, a forking of ways, if you will, right? But essentially, yeah. what we did do after the purchase was two very interesting things. One is to divert a lot of that spotlight into the NFT space and focus it on the things that we were building or things that were happening in the space. The second is we did sort of build a metaverse monument for the Beeple piece. The other thing we did was Dreamverse, which was the largest NFT art exhibition in the world. This was timed around NFT NYC in November of 2021, where we essentially splashed the Beeple piece on a 40-foot screen in the heart of New York at Terminal 5. We had artwork from uh, 152 artists from all over the world. It was, it was amazing. And the latter half of Dreamverse was essentially a concert by uh, you know a bunch of EDM artists and etc. It sort of redefined the way crypto events function, where it wasn't tech first or finance first or shill first, but just an exposition, an exhibition of, of the coolest aspects of it. So yeah, this is what we did with the people piece. Very cool. I wish I could have gone to that event and seen it myself in person. Maybe one day at a future conference, I'll be able to. But you're someone who is really deep with whether it's at shows like that or just from a research perspective, you know, trying to figure out what to buy through the fund. Do you have a piece of advice to collectors or artists who are also looking to acquire, maybe either acquire or sell their first piece? It's interesting, right? Because of the way Metapurse function and because of the dynamic that Metacoven and I had, I was never pressured or burdened by the idea of having to look at a particular NFT asset and think, will this sell tomorrow? But rather go with the question, how relevant is it going to be in five years? I think that's a very important take to have when you're investing in any particular space, particularly in the NFT space, because you know, and everybody tells you, but you don't always feel that this is super new, that it is nascent. Yeah. So you need to go in with that mindset and think about long-term relevance of whatever it is you're, you know, you're buying or you're selling and then get into it from there. The second aspect is the narrative that the NFT carries because inherently an NFT is a 
time capsule, a culture capsule, and it contains a story in it. How powerful is that story? How much can you relate to it? Based on that is the cell decision later on, right? I mean, Dylan Fields, for instance, he sold Figma recently, but much before that, he did sell his favorite CryptoPunk, right? And that was a beautiful story, a love story by itself, if you think about it, no? He acquired the CryptoPunk at a certain point without being very conscious about it. He developed a relationship with that piece of art over a period of time and then decided that, you know, it ought to be out in the open world. And so, you know, it, it sold for $6 million. Could it have gone for more if he'd held on to it for five years? Absolutely. But the narrative arc, right, the story has to come full circle somewhere, end somewhere. So in a sense, I know I'm not giving you extremely financial or practical points of view to do this, but that's how the NFT space works, man. It, it's culture. You're dealing yeah. with the buying and selling of pieces of the renaissance of our time. So it's not going to be easy, but it has to be super well thought out and in these directions, I feel. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder things that are culturally relevant now, when the, you put a price on it, will that price stand in five years, in 10 years? That's a hard question to answer for, maybe less hard to answer for specific pieces like the the grails of the grails, like that 5,000 everyday piece, you know? But I do wonder, can culture retain its hype as times change and people change and people might come into the scene who aren't even familiar with the culture of the, you know, the moment today? But you bring up great points. I don't know. I, I hope that I can one day have a Beeple piece in my collection. The closest I ever got was, it was sometime in, I want to say it was summer 2021. And Beeple was doing some, ra he did like this raffle competition. And if you could answer seven questions right, it was like a scavenger hunt. You got entered into a raffle and seven winners were selected to mint a piece for $1. And I got all seven right. I had done the scavenger hunt. It was crazy. I was like one of 7,000 people and seven people were getting picked. So my odds were one out of 7,000 to get a $1 Beeple piece. Like that's the closest I'm ever going to get. And I knew it in the moment. I was like, this is the closest I'll ever get. And of course, my wallet address wasn't selected by the randomizer. And I'm still Beepleless today, but you're an inspiration. And uh, maybe he'll do another raffle one day and I'll win. That kind of brings me to the next point, which is free NFTs. And so, you know, I could see a world where Beeple chooses a piece to mint out for free too. I mean, that could happen. That artists might use free NFTs to expand their collector base. So I'm curious, what's your take on free NFTs and the role that they play in Web3? First off, you need to step away from the idea of uh, NFTs as assets, right? If you take that away, what are they? I think there's no argument in the fact that NFTs are the molecules that build up this ecosystem, right? That's a pretty straightforward way. We call them building blocks, Lego blocks, molecules, essentially, right? Which means they need not be scarce at all. Give me one good reason why the building blocks of something ought to be scarce. There is no reason. So that's where the idea of free NFTs sort of light a bulb in your head, right? You want adoption. You want a lot of people to participate in a particular place, but then you're instantly right out of the gate. You're saying, I've only got 10,000 of these or a thousand or a hundred of these. And once they're all gobbled up, there's nothing for the rest of you. So free NFTs essentially distribute access and a connection with a large number of people. And that's, that's kind of what 
EDAO itself is working towards, right? To to sort of step away from this narrative. And we're doing it in a place where we're not trying to target just a Web3 aware audience because it's it's hard because they've seen NFTs as assets for so long. And when you're giving them away for free, they instantly don't value them and instantly it's a massive dissonance there. But if you look at someone who's got a fresh pair of eyes and they're coming into the space and you tell them, dude, this is the building block of the space here, you know, go on, have it, and you can build some something out of it. That's where the magic starts to happen. Experiences are scarce. Assets are scarce. Access should not be scarce. And that's why free NFTs. Mm. Yeah, I, I have a quote here from a, an article that I read that you recorded in prior to this. And the question was like, why should we be thinking about accelerating Web3 access? And the answer was, we need to move the conversation away from scarcity as the sole driver of value. And that was NFTs for a 12-month period of time. Scarcity was the sole driver of value. The topics were, what's the quantity of this collection? And that was really dictating you know, the cost. Oh, there's only 10,000 CryptoPunks. They must be valuable, right? But when you can create an infinite number of scarce objects, then sometimes yeah, that, that scarcity isn't as important. And it's more about what's built around that asset. So I really like that. And you mentioned some things like experiences. And so maybe it would be good to talk through different types of experiences that we might see in the future built around these NFTs. I have some thoughts I could throw out, but before that, maybe I'll just let you riff on it. Well, man, I've I've said some questionable things and repeatedly contradicted myself. So I'm glad what you picked up was okay. Experiences, right? You know, the beauty of NFTs is that they can unlock not just digital experiences or virtual experiences, but physical ones, fidgetal ones, and any sort of permutation of these experiences. Fidgetal. Yeah. Is that the word? Why not? That's a new word. New that is a new word. I have not heard fidgetal, but you're just talking about the combination of a digital and physical experience, and you can unlock access in both realms. Yeah, it's been around for a while. I mean, you're a Beeple fan. So Beeple's a very fidgetal kind of guy, right? So when yeah. he creates a work of art, there is a, a fidgetal object that you get as well. You know, something that's tangible. So I think NFTs can unlock a range of things for you. They can be the most, I mean, if you if you were to reduce it down to an extremely crass example, they can be the most effective loyalty program that a brand ever has, right? But the beauty is instead of something that's loose or uh, it fizzles away over time, you can get your user or your customer on a journey and build on it and take him through it and reward him for being part of that journey. And NFTs can enable that, right? For a celebrity or a creator, an NFT becomes that tangible connection between the two. And you've had conversations about this in the past with many of your guests, right? It, it offers such a strong bond between them, right? And it helps to separate the true fans from people that are just, you know, dropping in and going away. So NFTs can unlock a bunch of experiences, physical, digital, digital, virtual and a combination of all of these. Yeah. Do you expect to see the NFTs break into... So I was thinking like there's retail, entertainment. I threw utilities down on my list when I was thinking about experiences and utilities. I I mean, it's like identity as a utility. And then communities. I feel like we're kind of talking about communities. But when you talk about retail entertainment, will those surpass the the quantity of experiences we have, will they be focused on retail entertainment more so than maybe like the communities and art 
because right now we're we're in the community in the art world but i feel like as nfts just gain steam it's going to go towards the retail entertainment maybe more so than today it's interesting right you brought in entertainment community art retail essentially i think they're all part of the same thing and we are in a sense heading towards a convergence right i keep telling people the nft space represents the renaissance of our times what i mean by that is it's the perfect storm of finance and technology but it's propelled forward by culture which is how you define a renaissance that's how the first one happened and we're bang in the middle of this one culture and commerce have always sort of uh, been hand in hand together what the nft space will enable is to sort of supercharge that relationship essentially and that's where retail comes in that's where art comes in so in a sense what what will end up happening is experiences are always going to be driven around culture are always going to be oriented around culture even utilities right if there is an element of culture in it then they are far stickier than like a bare minimum utility right now what does this unlock for me does it unlock a 5% discount in this particular transaction or the next or does it unlock access to my favorite kind of content over a period of time yeah i'd always pick option 2 and i'd still spend money on either of these right but you see if either of these is suboptimal or subpar in quality the consumer drops away but when both of these come together you know with the best of intentions with the best quality with the idea that you want to exchange value with your consumer and not rip them off over one transaction it's magic and that's what we will begin to see this convergence of technology and commerce propelled forward by culture. Mm, well said. I like how you loop the culture back in there again and that's really what can can drive this and culture moves faster than ever these days. I mean really because of the social media apps because of TikTok like stuff like that culture happens in a flash and all of a sudden everyone all around the world seems to have a you know a common understanding of a meme, a picture, a saying. So totally agree. Maybe last question before diving into eDAO is when we're talking about experiences I feel like a lot of that leads to conversations around the metaverse and I'm curious should we be thinking about these metaverse experiences in VR AR environments or do you think they're really desktop and mobile metaverse experiences This is one of my favorite topics to keep ruminating around right because my definition of the metaverse has changed so much over the past couple of years and i think it has for all of us right i mean the original idea of the metaverse as propounded by neil stephenson right in you know snow crash or whatever is this massive homogenous city that kind of replaces your physical existence or rather you know it's an alternative to your physical ex- existence same ready player one etc etc but the way i've begun to think about metaverses is a decentralized space right which is not homogenous but essentially which is defined by the user themselves but is somehow interconnected through some core identity it's a bit of a mouthful but that's that's kind of where i'm at right now with respect to the metaverse it can't be a massive homogenous world because I don't think that's really working anymore you know it's it's like you know think about all of the existing metaverses today as we look at them including meta's horizon world whatever it is one it still feels centralized it's homogenous and even if you do 
own a piece of land there even if you do own property there's not a lot you can do with it because you can't force engagement into such places so maybe we're placing value at the wrong end of the spectrum right maybe the value should be placed on the experience and not on the land it's the difference between being able to plug into a netflix and being able to enjoy content and owning a domain and waiting for someone else to come and build on it and the next 100 people to come and engage with it on you you know what i mean so a metaverse for me has evolved into this place where it is oriented it springs up around a certain experience that you want to throw in and once the idea of the experience it can be a concert it can be a showcase it can be a theater it can be whatever it is right the land the digital assets the environment the commerce it springs up around that little piece of culture it's alive as long as the experience is alive you know people enjoy culture people conduct commerce and then it just dissipates and then it comes back in again and dissipates you know that's the idea of uh, uh, the metaverse that you know i i'm currently rolling with yeah i i think that definition of the metaverse for a lot of people is evolving and it, i think it also means a lot of different things right now so i was just curious what your take was on it I feel like we really haven't hit a really great metaverse experience yet. I mean, there's been moments, but the concept of it is still so loose. Like, I'm not sure if metaverse is just a rebrand of VR, AR, kind of like how Web3 was a rebrand of crypto. But some of the things you described, they're all factors of it, right? Well, let's jump into let's jump into EDAO. And I, th- I think they're doing some interesting stuff there I, I want to discuss. So maybe give listeners a brief description of EDAO and why you're focused on launching global art, media, and entertainment IPs at scale. Yeah. At EDAO, we're trying to build an immersive Web3 commerce infrastructure for brands, for creators, and for users all over the world, right? That can have various interpretations and the way it comes together. But essentially, it has uh, three very simple aspects to it. One is to get a dynamic digital collectible, an NFT that can evolve over a period of time into the hands of as many people as possible. These are free mint forever kind of NFTs. These will contain the most effective identity stack ever, right? And the reason I say that is because they will include a unique .edao unstoppable domain as well, right? So it should feel like uh, it's really yours. Essentially, I'm breaking this down into three very important aspects of what a person's first taste of Web3 should feel like. One is identity. The second is delight, right? That's where the experience comes in. Once you've got those collectibles, let them unlock a world of cultural and commercial experiences for you. That's what we're building next. So everybody that holds this digital collectible, we unlock a series of experiences for them. Like I said, virtual, physical, digital, and a combination of all of those things. Relationships with brands, even closer relationships with creators and so on and so forth. And finally, ownership, right? That's the third aspect. One is identity. The second is delight. And the third is ownership. And this is where the aha moment comes in, right? Okay, now I've, I've seen a really cool identity stack that's got a metahuman avatar of myself that gives me my own unique unstoppable domain that becomes like a, a virtual backpack where I can collect Po apps and other NFTs and sort of redefine myself. And finally, I tell the person, it's all yours, right? You you own it. That's the final piece of it, right? So this is what EDAO essentially is building and enabling for brands, for creators, and for users all over the world. 
Wow. I love that whole mission. And especially because a lot of the values that I try to bring to the table in this podcast sounds like overlap with the work you're doing around identity and ownership. Just talking through those concepts more, figuring out what Web3 identity means and how we're putting it together. You're definitely thinking through that yourself too. Not only do you get the identity in terms of your domain name and and that comes with a range of utilities, right? But then you can take that with you to directly unlock some of these Web3 experiences, which is very cool. Awesome. Thanks for that explanation. Can you tell me why you're choosing to build EDAO on top of Polygon? It's the most logical choice, isn't it? One, the sheer vibe that Polygon brings in, right? They've got this almost puppy-like enthusiasm for Web3 and for Web3 adoption. I haven't seen that with anybody else, to be honest, right? Um, And Web3 has this little syndrome of sort of looking down their nose at you, essentially. They have a really bad rap for this reason, right? Uh, You know, just to step back a bit, right? If if you're someone new and you've heard of NFTs or you've heard of crypto for the first time and you want to reach out and engage, right? There's only two flavors of that ice cream available to you. One is where, you know, this guy holding a massive placard saying, the end is nigh. You are all sinners because you're part of a centralized system. And the other is this guy selling dope in a street corner, right? Dude, you want to make a, a quick 10x, you know, come on, I got you sorted, right? There's oh, nothing in between. That really is the two. Yeah, th- there are no flavors in between, right? So it's, it's a very hard <laughs> choice for people to make, essentially. And and Polygon has this, this catch-all feel about it, like a puppy dog enthusiasm for bringing people into Web3, you know, all kinds of people, all walks of life across a spectrum of industries. And that makes it the most logical choice for us. EDAO essentially is looking at productizing Web3 and taking it to the people rather than trying to transplant all Web3 people and bring them into the wall garden of Web3, if if that makes sense, right? The things you do are essentially the same, but the way you look at them, I think it matters a lot. Web3 needs to be taken to the people. People should not be forced to sort of transplant themselves or move or migrate into Web3. That I think is a wrong idea. And Polygon embodies that sentiment most effectively. And Polygon, in fact, has incubated EDAO, you know, Sandeep's uh, uh, co-founder office and, and a bunch of, you know, angels and other investors. They have essentially incubated EDAO. So that, that's a reason too. But Yeah. You just said something that really struck me, which was we shouldn't force people to move and transition into crypto. And, you know, that the concept of change management. Uh, you know, If you come from a consulting background, change management is often some of the toughest part of the job. You've built a solution and now it's time to get the, the client or the team you're building for to actually stop using what they were using and use this new thing. And that like does not go well. And so we're asking people to really transition. But when you think about the the user experience of these applications? How do you reduce the friction across the board to make it feel seamless, to make it feel like the internet we all know and are accustomed to and love and still add on this new value? So I agree. I think Polygon's doing a fantastic yeah. job. And that's probably why not just yourself, but we're seeing some of the biggest brands that are entering the space also start building on Polygon too. So very cool to see ecosystem develop and that, that you've got ties there. You know, I, I had this question for later, but I now it's on the top of my mind, which is the, you know, Balaji has talked a lot about India being the next crypto frontier. And I know I, I feel Polygon is started in India too, right? Or am I wrong there? 
started in India. Gotcha. Are you seeing like just a wave of Indian entrepreneurs and crypto adoption happen across the country too? Yes. Uh, I mean, we're not the next frontier. We already are one of the biggest communities building in Web3 today. It's a bit of a tragedy that there isn't enough support or clarity from the Indian government yet. That's something we're working towards. But as far as you know, the enthusiasm of builders is concerned, India has always sort of uh, been on the forefront of that. I'm sort of praying that we don't miss this boat, right? Because we missed the last uh, ride, which was the, the dot-com wave. We got relegated to support functions for the most part. We saw very few entrepreneurs coming out of India. And this time we, we've got this amazing opportunity. And you know, Sandeep and the Polygon founders have sort of been on, on the forefront, really galvanizing massive builder communities out of India. So yeah. Yeah, very cool. I'm glad that the... The industry is really innovating in this space, working together. And it's, I mean, I'm impressed by everything you're putting out. So I also hope as well that the resources and the government are all pro crypto. So you can keep doing what you're doing. Well, okay. Well, let's jump back to EDAO. So I guess I want to know why EDAO is focused on arts, on music, on films, on creators. And so if there is a community, or a creator or a brand you're working with, is there a first step that they should be thinking about? Like if you're in the entertainment space, what's the first step you take into Web3? Like, is there a playbook you're offering these partners you're working with, or is each one really on a case-by-case basis? You know, there is a simple playbook. Obviously, how you orient it depends on a case-by-case basis, right? But if you step back and think about it, the first step always must be to get those digital collectibles in the hands of as many of your true fans as possible. That's it. That's the first step. Your Freemint NFTs, your dynamic NFTs, get them into the hands of people and then start to activate them as you will. That's where the creativity comes in later on, right? So what do I give people who now I know are my true fans, who now I know are my ambassadors? That becomes a very interesting question, which can, you know, you you can then infuse so many engagement loops within it. But the first step always is to start with those digital collectibles, I think. And we've got a pretty strong product with respect to that collectible itself and the way you distribute it among uh, a large number of people. So that would be our playbook. The second step of that playbook is to activate all of those collectible holders. It's different again for every industry. If it is, say, in the arena of consumer electronics, you can get people to become part of your product journey itself. That is so rewarding. Companies like OnePlus have created massive communities by essentially outsourcing the specs of their upcoming phones with the community. But the only difference is that the community is not necessarily rewarded for all of that useful user data as such. You can do that. You can change that up with digital collectibles, fashion, automotive, everything else in between, right? So this is the playbook, essentially. Then there is the idea of the metaverse itself that we did for Flipkart. Yeah, well, I'd like to get into some examples of companies entering the space that have really succeeded here. And so let's talk about Flipkart. And just before that, I'll mention Reddit this week, or I'd say maybe it was even last week too, just has been making a lot of narratives here. And they launched collectibles and they launched a native wallet that you hold these collectibles in. And once you start collecting, then there's like a point system so and it's just and it's all Reddit native. But the the things they did really well were they had native integration. So minting was done directly in their app. They abstracted Web3 
away from the the communication around it and the user experience. There was little to no mention of CryptoLingo. NFTs were called collectibles, wallets were called vaults. They were built on Polygon. So it goes back to this Polygon being an accessible ecosystem. And this ultimately led to a huge distribution with 3 million plus people holding these collectible avatars now. It almost seems like Reddit put on a masterclass in how to launch a Web3 activation, and they did it in the middle of a crypto winter. So I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned here. And I'm curious now that I've shared that, you know, what are some of these lessons learned from your Flipkart activation and in, in partnership? And maybe even let people know what Flipkart is, because I believe it's, is it not the biggest e-commerce brand in India? It is. It was uh, acquired by Walmart a few years ago, but it is the biggest e-commerce enterprise in India. I think it controls 42% of the market share. It's got 175 million monthly active users and I think in excess of 400 million uh, users. And and, it's it's a beast. It's a giant. And it's just pretty inspiring that they chose to experiment in the Web3 space like they did. And what we essentially did was a couple of pilot programs, right? Wildly successful now. And over the last couple of months, it it didn't take a long time to get this off the ground either. So kudos to those guys again. We sort of engineered two activations around the festive sale season, which is, (laughs) you know, we have a lot of festivals in India, but two of them that we chose were, you know, one was Dasera and the other was Diwali. And these end up being the largest sale events in India, online sale events in India. So what we did in the first one was to launch a simple treasure hunt for people within the ecosystem. And users, in a span of 10 days, they claimed 200,000 collectibles that EDAO produced, Wow, which, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, impressive. And then a few weeks later, we gave them their first taste of the metaverse. And when I say metaverse, we went all out, right? We created this hyper-realistic biome using Unreal Engine 5, and we streamed the whole thing into people's apps. They didn't have to download a separate app. They didn't have to go outside of their ecosystem somewhere else. They just could access a hyper-realistic world where they could go and engage with 13 brands from the Flipkart ecosystem, claim offers, you know, connect and interact with products. You start off with a little bit, a little shooter game, and then you enter the verse. You can claim offers, interact with brands, you can claim also art base NFT, which is the strand, that dynamic NFT I was talking about. And finally, you can, with one selfie, create a metahuman avatar of yourself. You could do all of that. And the amount of traction we saw was incredible. I mean, for one, EDAO spent a bomb in creating this experience and sort of streaming it to a bunch of people. It's still not tenable to keep repeating this, but it made for such an exciting use case, right? Because the average time that a user spent in this biome was four to seven minutes, which is insane, right? It, it certainly beats you scrolling quickly through a two-dimensional display of products. Yeah, People engaged with products more because it was three-dimensional and you could actually interact with it and conduct commerce with it. It wasn't an empty experience. And so the flipverse is what we called it because it flipped the narrative on what uh, e-commerce ought to be and the treasure hunt were two extremely important proof of concepts for what EDAO does essentially. So we brought in uh, IPs from all of our partners, which included Hefty Entertainment, which basically holds the Web3 rights to giant production houses like T-Series, which is the largest YouTube channel in the world, some major A-list uh, actors. 
artists like MF Hussain and Arzan Khambata, Divine, who's the largest hip hop artist out of India, and we put all of them inside this experience. So people got to enjoy IP and conduct commerce in that same ecosystem. We just got to do that was in itself a reward. And to see the kind of traction was even more. Yeah. Very cool. It sounds like consumers enjoyed the richer retail experience that Web3, NFTs, collectibles, ownership, avatars, metaverse, all that like led to. So seeing a major brand like Flipkart experiment with this is exciting to see and, and very cool that you are all on the frontier. Well, I appreciate you breaking that down. I'd love to jump into the final segment of the pod, our one, two, web, three rapid fire questions. I got three for you. You ready? Okay. All right. First question. Can you share an influential creator, entrepreneur, collector that's really inspired or educated you? And I know you've shared a couple today on the pod, but let's see if uh, anyone, if there's a different answer here or not. Metacoven, hands down, every time I think about an influencer or a creator, he comes to mind because he changed my life. I mean, it's as simple as that and just as profound. It took me seven years, Josh, to find my groove in this space. And he was the one catalyst that brought me inside. And now it is my life's mission to sort of pass that forward to as many people as I can. (laughs) The reason I want to make sure 10 million people get their hands on this dynamic NFT over the next few years is this so that people have the same kind of access to experiences and to this amazing new world as I do. And the catalyst for all of that happens to be Vignesh Medical. Awesome. Awesome answer. Second question. What's your favorite NFT? Oh, that's easy. That is a pair of NFT sneakers created by NoShot, the co-founder of Async Art. The sneakers are called The Abyss. They came out in late 2020 and looking at them, that was the first time I felt this absolute rush of FOMO that I just had to get that NFT, that kind of a thing, right? Which sort of typifies the uh, NFT ecosystem. I felt that fire for the first time when I looked at those sneakers. They, hands down, are still my favorite. Interesting. You know, that just reminds me of this Drake quote once. And Drake was talking about the music he was making. And he said, everyone wants me to make the album like I made 10 years ago. And he said, but here's what you don't realize. It's not that you want the same music. You want the moment you were in 10 years ago. And I can never give you that again. And so you talk about that initial rush of FOMO. That's like a moment that every NFT collector or investor has at at one point in their journey. They're like, oh my God, I got to go mint this now. And as you become more seasoned, you know, maybe that FOMO doesn't come as often. And so it's interesting how you, you really felt like the, this NFT, it paired with a feeling of emotion for you. So cool description there. And then last question, in five years, what's the craziest thing you think we'll be doing in the metaverse that people just aren't talking about yet? The craziest thing that people will be doing is that they won't be talking about the metaverse or Web3 in terms of blockchain or NFTs or crypto. It's going to become such an integral part of their lives. They won't even know what's underneath. That's the craziest thing I imagine will happen. And if in some way EDA was a catalyst to making that happen, I would have succeeded in what I want to do. Yeah, just true adoption. Well, 
Anand, this was a fantastic episode. I love the the passion that bleeds through when you talk about the Web3 and NFTs and the work you're doing in the space. So hope you have more success and we'll be sure to follow along. Can you let us know where we can connect with you, find you after listening to this episode? Sure. This was such a pleasure, Josh. Like I said, I've listened to so many of your conversations and you're one of the handful of podcasters that I keep coming back to. And so this was a joy. Well, I appreciate it. You can find me on Twitter at Vyananda, V-I-A-N-A-N-D-A. You can hit up, show some love to Edao at Edao HQ. Yeah, just hit me up. My DMs are usually open. Awesome. We'll be sure to link that in the description of the show. Thank you to everybody listening to the Unstoppable Podcast. Please, wherever you're listening, drop a review, like, and subscribe. It helps us keep growing and bring on more fantastic guests like Anand. And I will see you next week with another new episode. And until then, I'll be in the metaverse and I'll be on Twitter. So see you all. Thank you and have a good day. Peace out. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. Tweet us your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you and thank you so much for listening.